Hello, welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shabbat, Kuf Kaf Vav, 126. We are still talking about muksa. We are still talking about cases of designating things from before Shabbat. We are still talking uh, even perhaps a little bit about some of the specific cases that we spoke about yesterday. And with this, I will turn it over to Yerdena because I'm going to talk about something new afterwards. I just want to point out two things that are on the DAP that I think are just sort of under the who's who, what's what category. Um, so the first is uh, a Mishnah that's quoted here in the middle of Amunav, Ditznan, right? We learned in a Mishnah, and this is a Mishnah that appears in a Reuven, which will be our next Masachad. Um, Neger Hanigra, right? A, a door bolt that drags on the ground. Noalin Vo Bamidash. You can lock a door with it in the temple, in the Beit Hamidash. But not in the rest of the country, meaning not outside. I shouldn't use the word country. What they mean here, I mean, what they mean here is basically in all the areas outside of the temple, you would not be allowed, um, you would not be allowed to lock with it. Kanvakan uh, Asur, okay. It is, oh, sorry, the Hamunach and a bolt that's totally unattached, okay, and it's just laying on the ground. Kanvakan Asur, it is prohibited both in the Beit HaMikdash, both in the temple, and also in the rest of the Averet Yisrael. Rabbi Huda Omer, Rabbi Huda says, Hamunach Bamikdash, right? This type of bolt that's unattached and rests on the ground, that's why it's called Munach, right? Like resting, okay? Is um, is allowed in the temple. Um, it would be allowed in the temple. Right? And the one that's dragged, okay, is even allowed in the in the rest of the country. So he's saying something that's more make right? The uh, the Tanakama is saying that the one that drags on the ground is only permitted in the temple and not anywhere else. And the one that is Munach, that's totally unattached, is not allowed temple or the rest of Eretz Yisrael. And Rabbi Huda says the Munach one, um, I guess we're saying this out of order, right? The Munach one is allowed in the temple and the Nigra is allowed in uh, in both places, in the temple and the Medina. Um, so this is just, I just wanted to point out here, and then the Gemara gets into a discussion of what exactly is the uh, Negar HaNigra, right, um, that you are allowed to use. Um, and so they basically explain it's that it's a bolt that's attached to the door and it's suspended um, and its end reaches the, the ground. Um, but what I really wanted to point out here is, is that what's going on here in this mission is that using this type of bolt that's not tied at all to the door um, would actually be a malacha when you put it into the door of bona, of, um, of actually building, because it's like putting a nail into a wall. And therefore, it would really be just prohibited as one of the lamitat malacha, right, as one of the prohibitive actions in both the Beit HaMikdash and in Eretz Yisrael, it's just not allowed. But to get around this, you know, because you would need this type of, you need to lock a door on Shabbat, what they would do is, is you would tie it to the door. And since it was designated for this purpose of being able, you know, before Shabbat, um, then it, you know, and it becomes part of the structure. So it's part of the structure of the door. So it wouldn't actually be building anymore. Um, so therefore, it would not be uh, one of the Lamitat Malachot. Um, so that this is the case as long as the cord is so long that the bolt actually gets to the ground um, and it doesn't actually appear that it's like attached of the it doesn't appear that it attaches the door and it still could look like it's building. 
So therefore, what the rabbi said is, is that they allowed it, right? So the rabbis basically said, you're allowed, you're not allowed to use this bolt, okay? Unless it's actually actually suspended above the ground, okay? Because the idea is, is that if it fully reached the ground while it's attached, then it still would look like that you were actually building. And what's also interesting is, is that with this sort of workaround, right, there was still a rabbinic decree that essentially the, this prohibition um, only applies, um, doesn't apply in the temple, but only in the outside provinces. So in the temple, the bolt was actually allowed to touch the ground itself. Um, so it's just an interesting thing. I think it shows us, and we'll see this with other halachot, that sometimes something was allowed to be done in the temple versus something not being allowed to be done uh, in the rest of Eretz Yisrael. We'll see this in Rosh Hashanah. We'll see this with Lulav. Um, and I think it's just, you know, you could sort of miss it, I think, when you read it on the page. Um, but I think, you know, here we see it with something that has to do with Hilchot Shabbat, right? That they needed a workaround uh, for using this type of bolt. So it wasn't actually Bona, but there were different ways to do it in the temple uh, versus the rest of the country to show that you really weren't building. And if it actually touched the ground itself, that you weren't allowed to do. That wasn't an appropriate workaround in the rest of the country uh, because it still looked like you were building. But in the temple, the rabbis did allow that. Um, so that was the first thing that I wanted to, to mention on this page. Um, and anything so, you want to add to that? Yes. So the thing that I find perhaps, you know, almost stops you in, in your tracks kind of thing. Nearly, well, maybe this isn't fair to say, but many, many, many of the times that we think of distinctions between, you know, the comparable practice that is done in the Beit HaMikdash as compared to how it's done outside of the Beit HaMikdash, we think of ritual, right? We think of what happens with a lulav. We think of truma and kudshim, and, and so maybe that's not exactly a ritual, but there are things that have very specific holy designations that can only be done in the Beit HaMikdash, etc. This seems to be kind of, I don't know, like it's it's much more workaday, which I find to be very interesting in the way that it gets a special designated status in the Beit HaMikdash. Exactly. So I think that's just, it's and, and I want us to pay attention to where we're going to see later on in the Gemara, examples where one thing is true in the Beit HaMikdash and one thing is true um, everywhere else. Um, one other thing I just wanted to point out, uh, I know we mentioned a couple dafim ago, um, and I'm not remembering which daf it was, but we're seeing in Hilchot Shabbat in particular, there sort of, sort of seems to be this vacillation between to prove a point or to prove what a halacha is, another time it exhorts or an Amorite saying, versus a story, right? Where they say, like, I saw X, Y, and Z happen in somebody's house on Shabbat. Um, and the Gemara relates, uh, so the Gemara ends the parak in the following way. And I won't get into everything that the Daf is talking about here, but it's more the point of what happens here um, at the end, right? So it says, just Rabbi Yitzchak Navcha Ipitcha Deresh Galuta. So Rabbi Yitzchak Navcha was giving a lecture at the entrance of the house of the Reish Galuta, our friend the Reish Galuta, and he said, halacha Rabbi Eliezer. And he says, the halacha is like Rabbi Eliezer, who said in our Mishnah that the shutter can be used to close a window only if it's attached to the building um, and suspended somehow in the air, okay? Matziv Rav Amram. Rav Amram challenged this, you know, based on uh, another Mishnah. Um, and we'll see what is the Mishnah, right? And from their words, we learned that we can shutter, measure, and tie on, uh, that we can tie um, on Shabbat. 
Um, so this Mishnah would teach us that we can shutter a window, even if it's not attached to a building. Um, so now Amar Lay, so Abai says, uh, Amar Lay Abai, Abai says to Rabbi Amram, right? Why are you posing this as a challenge? Okay. Um, you know, you, you basically, uh, you, you're sort of bringing down a Mishnah that follows the opinion of the Chachamim in our Mishnah. But we know that the Halacha, but you're saying the Halacha, you know, follows. Uh, we know the Halacha, according to Rabbi Yitzchak, Nafcha follows Rabbi Elezer. Mishum diktani stam, right? Um, because it teaches the ruling anonymously, and usually a Halacha just follows a Mishnah that's anonymous. So that's the first principle that I think is interesting here, is that Abai is basically teaching this, Mishum diktani stam, that when we have what we call a stam Mishnah, a Mishnah with no, you know, it's not attributed to a specific person, right? We usually follow those types of Mishnahs. Neger hanigrar nami stamahi. So now we go back to what we talked about before, this mission in Eruvin, that teaches that a bolt that's attached to the door but drags on the on the ground, right? Somebody, you're not allowed to use it in the, um, you're not allowed to use, remember, in the in the rest of the Medina, right? It's also a Mishnah Stama. It's also a Mishnah Stama, but it also follows the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, which as it was explained earlier. And then what do they say here? And they say, nevertheless, right, practice is greater proof, right? Um, so what they're saying here is the following, that the Mishnah that Rav Amram brought is based on a ruling of like an actual practice of the Tanayim, and therefore it's actually more authoritative, okay, than maybe what Rabbi Yitzchak ben said, where he said, no, we follow Rabbi Eliezer. And even though that opinion would normally be from Islam Mishnah, okay, but what Rav Amram did was actually what we call a Masa Rav. Now, how do we know that that Mishnah was a Masa Rav? I'm not totally sure, but I just thought there were just two. What we see going on here is it's more the concept I want to flush out here, less the details of what they're discussing. But the idea here, the first of all, Abai talks a little bit about a Mishnah Stama, like that they were very aware that there were some Mishnahs that did not have an author that, you know, was appeared in the Mishnah itself. And those have a particular type of halachic weight. And then we have other types of Mishnah, which are what we call a Masa Rav, right? Which is a Mishnah that seems to be based on the actual practice of the Tanayim. And that also has, uh, you know, has more weight. So that even when somebody says, when a rabbi says the halacha follows a certain view, okay, like Rabbi Yitzchak Nafcha, that may actually be true. Okay, because it may be that in terms of how he understood it and learned it, that could actually be true. But it, we have the final decision actually needs to be based on what was the actual practice? What was it that people were actually doing? Um, and therefore, we follow something that's actually the Masa Rav. Um, so again, I just think we're seeing here sort of the Gemara being self-aware, uh, the Amorayim being aware of at least how they work out which are the more authoritative Tanaitic statements. Okay. Um, let's pause for a minute. I just want to say, I think that this interplay between, again, between the, what do we have here? Tanaitic statements, Amoraic statements, Masa right? Masa Rav. This, we say this all the time, but let's say it one more time. The, many different component parts that come together to make the Gemara be the Gemara in terms of teaching halacha and teaching everything else that it teaches, right? It imparts ethics and so on. 
Um, I think it's really complicated. And I'm again struck by how creative, I guess, or artistic, right? The, the way Chazal put this all together is complicated. And uh, yeah, thank you for putting it together so nicely for us. Okay, let's go on with the Mishnah here. We have a Mishnah at the end of uh, at the end of uh, the middle of Amabet, and then we have another Mishnah at the end, and the end of Amabet, which is already the new parak. So I want to kind of fly through this, and they're not going to connect, um, not really. But the first one anyway does connect everything that we've just been talking about here. Kol kisu, well, not today, but in general these days. Kol hakelim Every kind of cover of a kli, of a vessel, that has a beit achiza, that has a handle, you can move that on Shabbat. So Rabbi Yossi says, what are you talking, what kind of thing is this really talking about? We're talking about a cover for a pit that's in the ground. But if you're talking about just a cover of a kli, right, like your, the items in your house, whether or not it has a handle, you can still move that kind of cover on Shabbat. Now, I'm sorry, I'm jumping into the Gemara, right? To, that's going to provide us with a really brief commentary on this Mishnah. This, only, this whole discussion, that whole discussion of the Mishnah, only works, only applies when there's actually something that has the status of a Kli. And we've had this discussion beforehand, and we'll have this discussion going ahead when we really come to define what exactly constitutes a cleat, right? What makes something a vessel, as halachically, as opposed to, I don't know, an item or an object, right? So in English, all of these words can be used interchangeably, but the the halachic status of a cleat is as opposed to, I don't know what other term we might choose, a chefetz or I don't know, right? It's a very specific term, especially because Kalim can be makabel tuma, right? They can be rendered impure, and not all things can. Um, okay, the so vehushiyish torah kliyalehen dukule alma kisui karkaot. The the gemara explains that everybody says that if you've got a cover for the ground, meaning for a pit, and it's got a handle, then you can move it. And if you and if not, no. Emishlehen beta chiza in ilo lo kisui hakelim. So what's so and everybody says that if it's a regular you know household vessel type of thing, then even if it doesn't have a, a handle, you're allowed to move it. So everybody agrees on those two things, which seems to be the two cases in the Mishnah. What's the big deal? They disagree. So then the question is, what about a kli that has a halachic status of a kli? And it is attached, the Chabrin Hubar, it is attached to the land. Marsavar Gazrina. No, Marsavar Lo Gazrina. So one sage, meaning the first time in our Mishnah, says that we that there was indeed a decree that said that you're that it was included rather in the decree that you're not allowed to move the cover of a vessel that's attached to the ground if it doesn't have a handle. Right? And then the next sage, Marsavar. That's Rabbi Yossi, says that we do not issue a decree, right? There's no, there's logas rinan, lishnach rina, and there's another formulation of this same kind of conversation, which again is the Gemara editing itself and preserving the original version. 
So then they say, well, it's not talking about whether it's an attached vessel in the ground. Really, it was arguing over whether there's a cover for an oven. Kisui karka, if there's a kisui tanur. And then the question is, is that like a kisui karka? Is that like the cover for ground for the ground? Or is it like the kisui, the cover for a regular household utensil? And it's not really fair to pick a preference of Lishnachrina or the first formulation or the second formulation, but there's something pleasing to me about the second formulation because it does seem to be, you know, let's examine what's the what's the difference of the identity here. We have a third category. It has to be a separate identity. What does it mean for there to be a kli in the ground that's attached to the ground as opposed to a pit, right? So the tanur, the case of an oven, which again, sometimes can have the status of a kli, um, works well for me, just in my literary appreciation, also because of all the discussion yesterday about the ovens, right? Okay. Hadran alach kol kalim. This is the end of our parak, and we begin our new parak. And again, we have a whole new topic here. Wait, before you start with the, with the Mishnah. Yes. Just one I'm sorry. I just no, no, to ask okay. a comment. comment. I, you know, this should remind us this whole thing, like, is it considered a clay or not a clay, should remind us of our discussion about that piece of wood. Like, the Gemara is very aware that there are objects that are not a clay. Not everything that's movable is a clay even though we sort of refer to Kalim as like Dvarim Shemitaltoin, they're things that we can move around. That's all I wanted to say. Like it's, it's oh, not it's everything a very, very a Right, and that's why what defines a Klee becomes important because otherwise it would just be everything, but it's not. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay, so now back, you know, coming forward to the Mishnah that will introduce us to the next parak. Mfanin. So what happens? You're, here it is Shabbat, and you have baskets of straw and baskets of other kinds of produce, right? Now you have guests, right? So already I'm loving this mission because it's such a it's such a narrative kind of of you know the mission basically introduces halacha, and usually it's pretty you know, bullet of halacha. Da -da 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 -da. This is what halacha is. Okay, we've got a machloket. Move on. And here we've got, that's what it is, but you, it, it's painting a scenario. Right, if you have four or even five baskets of straw or produce that are, you know, apparently set out, but now you have guests. Can you move them on Shabbat? And the answer is, well, it depends. Basically, it depends where you are. Um, so what happens? If you have these baskets taking up the seats of the Beit Midrash, then you can move them for the guests who need those seats, right? But if you're in the in the Otsar, if you're in your, I don't know, storeroom, if you're in your pantry, right, and you want and, and you're gonna move them for the guests, no, no. There you cannot pick them up and move them for the sake of the guests. So I find like there's much to unpack here. Let's finish the mission before we get there because that will also help us unpack it as we go. You can move truma that is tahor, right? It is ritually pure. Truma is the tithing that would go to the Kohen. 
Udmai, Umase Rishon, Shinitla Trumata. Oh, let's see. Trumata Maisvot. Yerdani, can we do a very quick rundown or should we wait? And uh, I think we should wait thing? just because we're time. Because of time. But these are basically okay. all, the, all the things that you had to take from your produce to give to Kohanim, to Levian, to sometimes eat in Yerushalayim. Um, and all those types of things, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll find the time to discuss it soon. Exactly, they all come off of your produce, and they're all your gifts. Fundamentally, gifts to tzedakah and to Hashem, in one way or another. Okay, so all of these cases, um, so you're allowed to move that truma. You're allowed to move all these things when it's already been taken, and including. Atormus, right? The dry lupine, because that is that also has again a designated purpose on Shabbat. You can feed your goat, the the dry tormus. This this exception aval this but, however, is. That anything that is not in this category of already ready to go, you've already tithed. Those are the things that you can move on Shabbat. But if you haven't yet done the tithing, then you cannot move it on Shabbat. And again, the 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 premise is that you have no purpose for this. You're not allowed to take truma meiser on Shabbat, so you can't do anything with that stuff, all that produce, until after Shabbat when you can pr- tithe it properly. And therefore, you cannot even move it. It is really fundamentally mukta. And it's fine. This kind of fleshes out this rationale that you ha- when you have bundles of straw and wood and twigs and things like that, if you have set them aside to be food for your animals, then you can move them and carry them. They have a designated purpose on Shabbat, of course. And if not, if you have not designated them for anything, even though they're not they're not waiting for truma, but they also don't have any value to you, they don't have any purpose for you on Shabbat, you may not move them. Um, the Gemara here explains this. We are out of time. I just want to say that one of the things that I think is important here is that we're fundamentally in a whole new parak talking about a whole new area of halacha, and it requires us to pay attention to all these different areas of halacha coming together again, truma and tara, and what's food and what goes to the animals and so on. And yet we're also still paying attention to what can you move on Shabbat. We're still talking about muktzah. That's our dot for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the 100 website. Uh, Come join us on our Facebook page and have a chat with us there. Until tomorrow, go and learn. Mm